Good morning. First thing, first place that I saw this done, I suppose, was at the Palm Beach Lakes Church of Christ. And on that occasion, the preacher, David Spruill, had asked all of the young people, those in junior high and senior high, and they typically sat up close together at the front, he asked them all to stand at the same time. And then he asked about half of them to sit down. And he said to the parents and the other adults in the auditorium all around, the statistics are that churches of Christ, and really across the religious spectrum, are losing fully half of their young people. Now that doesn't mean as much to us if it's just some faceless number, he said, but I want you to look at those faces. He says, how many of our young people do you wish to see become a casualty of statistics? And of course it really is much more powerful when we can see faces that help us to understand how critical it is for us to help, to train, and to equip, and to empower the Lord's Church of tomorrow. And there's a lot of different ways that Lehman Avenue uh, strives to do that. It was a custom that preceded our coming here that the young men on the fifth Sunday of the, when there is a Sunday with five, that we have our young men preach. And that has been restored. And our young men, several of them, are going to be preaching tonight uh, brief lessons combined on, I believe, the subject of James. Uh, which will fit very nicely with David's class that he is teaching in the Sunday morning adult class. May I encourage you to make a tangible investment in the future of the Lord's church by being here physically present tonight, if at all possible, to hear and to encourage these young men as they preach the only timeless message of all earth and to help encourage this church and the Lord's church everywhere through encouraging and investment in these young men. Our world has been called for the last couple of decades the age of information, the information age. And there's a good reason why that's the case. If you want to measure it in this way, on any given day there are 3 million views, I'm sorry, 3 billion with a B, views on TikTok videos every day. There are 500 million tweets that are sent out each and every day. There are 4 million hours of videos uploaded to YouTube every day. And there are 6 billion hours of YouTube videos viewed each and every day. Do you know that there are 70,000 Google searches each and every second, including the one that I did to find that statistic? You know, it's amazing how much information is at our fingertips Did you realize that the average person in the world today in one day accesses and acquires more information than any person living in the 15th century did in an entire lifetime? It's amazing to consider how much information is out there. You know, as we think about information, we need to understand that ideas have consequences. And if that's the case, then bad ideas have victims. If we don't master ideas, we can understand that ideas are going to master us. When we consider how uh, much access there is to information all around us, there's a dilemma for us. How do we find truth in such a sea of information that is out there? And there's some challenges with this. 
The first challenge to finding truth in the sea of information is the challenge of timing. That is, we don't have control over when new ideas, new thoughts, new arguments are being raised out there to challenge truth and right. There's the challenge of trust. Who is telling the truth and all of the ideas that are out there? When you go and you do that Google search, that source is giving you the information that's right. But there's also the challenge of thinking. How do we discern between claims and arguments with feelings and facts? You see, we live in a society that pressures us to conform and not to think. And we live in an entertainment-oriented society where it is thinking is stunted. You think about the word amuse. Did you know that the word amuse literally means not to think? Muse is to think. A negates that. And if we can't discern ideas, then we're going to find ourselves very easily deceived. Another translation renders Colossians 2 verse 8, which Ethan read to us so well a moment ago, as saying, let no one capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that comes from human thinking. It's what the Apostle Paul has in mind when he writes to the church at Philippi. At the beginning of the epistles, Paul in his prayers would often give us the themes, the idea of what the book is about. And that's certainly the case with the book of Philippians. And so the Apostle Paul says that I pray that your love may abound more and more, that you may be filled with knowledge and with all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent and live a pure and blameless life for the day of Christ, being filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the praise and the glory of God. That's Philippians chapter 1, verse 9 through verse 11. And in that particular text, we have for us this idea... That ideas are prevalent and we need to have the right ideas. When you think about what ideas are, ideas are what form the direction of your life. What are you going to do? Who are you going to be? And there's a word that really helps to capture that and that's the world, word worldview. And a worldview is simply a, a basic set of beliefs that we have about living life in this world. Our beliefs about being in this world and our beliefs for this world. And your worldview causes you to ask and answer some very basic questions about origin, about identity, about meaning, about morality, and about destiny. So how do we know if the ideas that we have that form the direction of our life are the right ideas? The Apostle Paul really encourages us, and he encourages all of us, no matter who you are, to think about the worldview. What is your view of the world? Because how you view the world determines the decisions that you make. Will you look with me at Paul's prayer in Philippians chapter 1 verse 9 through 11? And I want us to see three things that we can conclude about our worldview from what Paul says in that text. Number one, the apostle Paul would say to us, form your worldview. Verse 9. Now, it's not an encouragement really to form your worldview. You are going to view the world. The question is, how will you view the world? You, some of you know that we moved here from Colorado. We moved here specifically from Littleton, Colorado. And you may be aware of, some of you are old enough to remember something that happened on April 20th, 1999. At a place called Columbine High School. 
That happened uh, 1999, a little over a decade later, Kathy and I bought a house three miles directly south from the Columbine School on the same street. In fact, we lived in a subdivision called Columbine Knowles. And some of the other residents in the subdivision had children and grandchildren who were present at the school the day that Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris walked into that school and killed 12 students and a teacher. Do you realize that their view of God... Of origin was that there is no God. That their view of their identity is that human beings are simply life forms and are no different from all other living beings and life forms on this earth. Their view of their destiny was that there is no life after this death. And then their view of morality then is that there was no eternal consequences to follow their actions on April 20th, 1999. How we view life matters. The Apostle Paul is not only telling us that we need to have a view of life, he is telling us what that view ought to be. He is encouraging us to form a worldview. And he's not giving us a comprehensive, exhaustive list of the things that we need to make up our worldview, but he is giving us some very representative ideas that can help us to view the world in the right way so that we can answer those questions about where we came from, who we are, and how we live, and where we're going, and how we live while we're here. There are three things that he highlights. He says, first of all, that we need to have overflowing love. The Apostle Paul tells us that he prayed that their love would abound more and more. The world is going to tell us that we need to love. The problem is so often their idea of love is warped. The idea of love is a feeling of affection. It is a feeling of pleasure in something if the world defines that for us. But the Bible tells us what this love is. When the love that we're talking about in Philippians 1 and verse 9 is defined for us, it's what Paul is talking about to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 4 through 7 where he gives us 16 qualities that help us to see what love is. That love is what is patient. It is kind. Love is unselfish. Love is humble. Love is forgiving. You'll see those qualities laid out there for us. It is an active concern for the well-being of another that causes us to act in their best interest. And so I can take this grid, this definition, this concept that's woven throughout the New Testament. I can look to the cross and I can see it perfectly demonstrated. And I can ask myself, am I loving in the way that Scripture tells me to? Am I patient? Am I kind? Am I unselfish? Am I humble? Am I forgiving? Am I hopeful? And so the Apostle Paul lays out there for us, how do you view the world? How do you form your view of the world? It has to include a God-like quality of actively being interested in the other person that causes us to live in a way in which we pursue that which is better for others. But then he also says that there is to be an increased knowledge on our behalf. Knowledge is the ability to process information appropriately. And there are some ways for us to understand or to ascertain knowledge in our lives. We can ask some questions. I have found, Kathy will tell you I ask too many questions. I guess I've been that way since I was a boy. To know more, we've got to ask questions. What do you mean by that? That's an important question for us to ask, especially when our culture takes words or terms and hijacks them. For example, if we're talking about marriage equality, we need to ask, what do you mean by marriage? What do you mean by equality? 
Or when you talk about truth, what do you mean by truth? Do you mean what's true for you as opposed to what's true for me? Or do we talk about that which corresponds to reality? And so we need to ask questions. Another question that we might ask is, what if you're wrong? You know, Blaise Pascal was known for his wager about God in which he said that if you are erroneous in believing that God exists, you lose nothing, assuming that death is the absolute end. But if you are correct in believing in the existence of God, you gain everything. We have come to know the Son of God, and by this uh, understanding, we can know Him that is true, and we are in Him that is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ, First John chapter 5 and verse 20. And so out there for us in this worldview is the ability to ascertain, to process, and to understand information about what's important. Paul is calling for an increased knowledge, but he is also calling for all discernment. It's interesting that this particular form of the word, Discernment is only found in this one New Testament passage, but it is an important word. It means the capacity for moral understanding. Another way to to define that would be critical thinking. There are messages that are out there. How do we counteract the messages that are put out there, no matter how widely they're put? How do we push back against information? How do we know when somebody asserts something that's true that goes against what we know to be true? And how do we keep from rejecting what is put forward as true, which Scripture says is not true? We've got to have the capacity, the ability to process and push back on information. Hebrews writer talks about another form of this word when he says that the one who partakes only of milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. For solid food belongs to those who are mature, who by reason of exercise have trained their senses to discern good and evil. Now the Hebrews writer is telling us that the way that we grow our discernment, our ability, our capacity for moral understanding is through the word of righteousness. Paul in Philippians chapter 1 is saying it's the gospel. And so as you form your worldview... There are at least three things that have got to make it up. The first is love, the active concern for others that we're taught by God to possess. An increasing knowledge where we grow our ability to process facts and information and to use it properly, which is also discernment. It is the capacity for moral understanding and that will help us as we live in this world and we live for this world. But there's a second thing that Paul would point out to us by the praying of his prayer that can help us with our worldview. Not only to form our worldview, but second, to test our worldview. He is saying, don't just take my word for it. Put it to the test. Any worldview, you need to put it to the test. Don't just blindly believe that it's so. You need to approve what is excellent. You need to be able to take everything that comes your way and to be able to process that and say, is this worthy to accept or should I reject that? And when you think about that as it has existed throughout time, we have found people who have worldviews seem to hold up just fine. If everything's going well in society, just about any worldview is going to be just fine. It'll hold up. It's when things get difficult that you really find out how worthy your worldview is 
Let me go back again a little bit more than 20 years ago. For those of you that can remember this, but it's so much a part of our fabric of who we are today. Everything forever changed because of the events that happened early on the morning of September 11th, 2001. If you think about what happened on that day and what happened in the wake of that. When it was that, if you remember this, maybe you were in school at the time, that temporarily prayer was reinstated in school, at least for a couple of days, that the talk show hosts, late night shows went off the air. And when they came back, you know what? They were not telling jokes. They were being very sober. Isn't it interesting that in those days, nobody turned to atheism for comfort or turned to atheism for meaning and purpose in the events that took place? Because that worldview doesn't hold up. I love how Francis Schaeffer describes that for us. He says that over the many streams of Europe were a great many humpback bridges that were built. And men and wagons went over those bridges successfully for centuries, for two millennia. But if you were to take a loaded truck and drive it over those bridges today, they would break. And the same is true for any value system and any worldview that's built only upon ourself and not something higher. When things are going well, fine. But when pressures come, it's going to break. The Apostle Paul is laying out for us the biblical worldview. And he's saying, put it to the test. Apostle Paul in Romans 12 and verse 1 says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice to God, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You, you think about when somebody is put to the test who is living by a biblical worldview. How do we respond when there's tragedy, when there's collapse, when there's difficulty, when we face the death of a loved one, when we face our own death, when we're taken advantage of, when we're betrayed, the Apostle Paul would encourage us to put it to the test. When your life is turned upside down, lean on this worldview and see what happens. And he did, didn't he? His faith and therefore his worldview was put to the test all the time. And he could say, we are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed, always bearing about in our body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus might be magnified in our bodies. You have known people who have leaned on the biblical worldview and it has helped them through the most difficult moments. And might it be fair to say that those sometimes who do not hold up, whose faith cracks, has not, have not really allowed the biblical worldview to be the commitment of their lives. Paul is saying, you're going to view the world some way, but put this worldview to the test, the way that God presents that things ought to be and compare it to every other one that there is out there. What holds up? But you know, all this is fruitless if we don't take the, uh, the conclusion that is there for us to take at the end of his prayer. We've got to live our worldview. Verse 10 and verse 11. It's not just about understanding what's right. It's got to be a part of our everyday lives. And he tells us three things I want us to quickly notice about how to live your worldview. How to make it practical so that, that in your life you put that worldview into practice. The first thing is be sincere and blameless for the day of Christ. We don't have to wonder what the day of Christ is. All we got to do is to read the rest of the letter of the Philippians. In the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6 that he had confidence that God, who had begun a good work in them, would perfect it unto the day of Christ. 
In Philippians 2 and verse 16, he says, Holding forth the word of life, that I at the end will have cause to glory in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. The day of Christ that he's talking about is the day in which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord in Philippians 2, verse 9 and verse 11. He's saying there's a great day coming. That's out in our view. So how do I live? He says live pure lives. You know what the idea there is sincere? It's transparent. Live a transparent life so that nobody has to wonder. Is he telling me, is she being up uh, above board with me or can I trust them? Live a trustworthy life and then live a life that is blameless. You know, my son shared with me this week a quote that he had heard that I think fits very well here. You know, you can't help if somebody doesn't like the way you look. But you can't help it whether or not that you trip them and make them mad at you because of that action that you take. What the Apostle Paul is not saying is be politically correct or keep back the truth so as not to be offensive. What he is saying is that you live above board in such a way that you're not in a, uh, unnecessarily offensive. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all of the glory of God, giving none offense to the Jew or to the Greek or the church of God. For as I please all men and all things, not for my own profit, but for the profit of many, that they may be saved. 1 Corinthians 10, 31-33. Our worldview becomes powerful when people look at us and they say, there's somebody who's living a Christ worldview. You can trust them, whatever comes out of their mouth. Whatever they tell you they're going to do, they're going to do it. And you're going to see that they have the sweet aroma of Christ in every place. And that leads us to the next thing he says, and that is, be filled with the fruit of righteousness. If that life of blamelessness and purity is about our attitudes and our actions, this is the follow-up to that. This is about the conduct of our lives. Be filled with the fruit of righteousness. I think the way Jesus said it in the Sermon on the Mount was, you shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, and a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree does not bring forth corrupt fruit, neither does a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that does not bring forth good fruit is cut down and is thrown into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. James talks about that in James chapter 3. And understanding how to live in the gentleness of wisdom. It's not by this earthly wisdom that is not from above. That is earthly, demonic, and sensual. Because that's where jealousy and selfish ambition exists. And that's where disorder and every evil thing exists. But the wisdom that comes from above is first pure and peaceable. It's gentle and it's unwavering. It's without hypocrisy, but it's full of mercy and good fruits. For the, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace. By those who make for peace. I don't know how many of you have ever eaten a durian fruit. You ever eaten a durian fruit? It's really not native to our part of the world. But if you had, you would know it. They say some things about the fruit. That, you know, people, it's kind of popular right now to eat pumpkin seeds and other seeds. Don't do that with a durian seed. Because it's toxic, it's poisonous, and it's even thought to be a carcinogen. And so you want to make sure that you plant it in the ground or you cook it really good. But the folks who make the decision to plant it in the ground, it grows this fruit. And people describe the aroma of this fruit. They use such terms as gym socks, rotten onions, raw sewage. I don't know about you, but I'd have a hard time getting past the smell to try that. They say that the taste is okay. 
But it's banned in airports and in subways and in many hotels in parts of the world where it's even grown. When you think about the seeds that you're planting in your life, are you producing that durian-like fruit? Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the fragrant aroma of Christ in every place. You see, what is the result of living the biblical worldview? We bear the fruit of righteousness. And oh, how that changes the world. But then we live to the praise and the glory of God. That's how you live out that worldview. What if all of our life was one long attempt to do everything we could to the praise and glory of God? And listen, we're going to fall short. We're not going to be able to do that perfectly. But what if that was the aim of our life? What a difference it would make. Ideas have consequences. Remember we said that? There's a difference. If you believe that this world was the product of an accident of nature, or you believe that it was the deliberate design of God, there is a difference if you believe that truth is absolute or if you believe that truth is relative. It's different for me than it is for you. There is a difference that is made if you believe that this life is all that there is or if you believe that there is an eternity that follows this life. And if we understand this concept that Paul is putting forward, that we're living our lives as children of God to the praise and the glory of God, then we living from that worldview will not fail to make a difference. Those around us. You're being influenced by the decisions and the consequences all around you. Even if you say, I decide not to make a choice. That's a choice. And that choice has consequences. And we live in a world in which people say, there is no God truth. It's not absolute. There is nothing beyond this life. When I answer the questions about origin, identity, meaning, morality, and destiny... I say that we are all that there is. The Apostle Paul says, this is exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And they've tried that. Societies have tried it all throughout the ages. And what happened when they tried it in the Roman Empire, in the days of the first century when the Bible was written in the New Testament? Their throat is an open grave. And with their tongues they utter deceit. And the poison of asps are under their lips. With their mouth there is cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And destruction and misery are in their path. And the path of peace they have not known. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. It was not about the destruction of an empire. It was about the eternal destruction of lives that were built on the wrong worldview. That's why the Bible's written for us. To help us to know how to live in our world. And how to live for our world. I believe it was Samuel Johnson that said... That it's the power to know the difference between good and evil, between the genuine and the counterfeit, and the wisdom to choose the good and the genuine over the bad and the counterfeit. So how do we answer those questions about our origin, our identity, and our meaning, about our purpose? Well, here's the biblical worldview. As Jared led us in this morning to begin our worship, there is a God He is alive, and of all creation, He made us in His image. He endowed us with the ability to choose. He, of course, wanted us to choose what's right. He has always given us guidance to know what that is. But knowing that in the freedom of choice that we would choose to do that which the Bible calls sin, He didn't leave us without a solution. In fact, to provide an answer to the solution, He gave of Himself to give it to us. 
He has given us a redemption that we think about every Sunday morning through the Lord's Supper. A blood that was shed that on those that are obedient continues to cleanse their sins day by day as we continue to stumble and struggle in living that worldview. He's given us an exalted mission. It's a mission to help other people to know exactly what we have learned and to be obedient to it. And to be prepared for what God is trying to prepare us all for and that's to live in heaven with Him forever. But He leaves it to us. You're going to view the world in some way. And your view of the world will impact how you view truth, how you view people, how you view the most vulnerable, how you view moral and ethical matters. If you deny that there's a God, you deny that this worldview is the worldview by which to live, you're basically going to live for yourself. You may do civic good, you may do good for your family, but why? God says, consider an exalted and a selfless view. That gives you the best ability possible to live not only your life, but to help those all around you. This morning, in that worldview, comes an invitation. This morning, we're going to sing a song to encourage you. Maybe it is that you have come to a knowledge and an understanding, a conviction, that His way is the way. And you want to walk that way. You won't walk it perfectly, but He says, come to me and I will give you rest. My burden is not too much. Because I'm going to help you to bear it. If you're ready to make that decision, we want to help you. If you're a child of God or struggling with the problems of this life, or maybe a sin problem that you would like for.